0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And now it's time for our American Dreamers series, sponsored by the great folks at the Job Creators Network. And Job Creators works hard to effectuate policies that allow small businesses to grow into bigger ones and thus secure their part of the American dream. And our own Joey Cortez brings us today's episode, which begins in, of all places, South America.
1: I was born in El Salvador in a very rural area. I was about nine years old. The whole region became pretty much a war zone.
2: You're listening to Jose Menévar, an American immigrant who fled the Salvadorian Civil War in the 1980s. It was a bloody civil war between a military coalition and various communist groups. And like most communist revolutions, El Salvador's gained attraction amongst the farmers.
1: Our town was agriculture and we all helped on the farm. People started coming to the town from Cuba. They will come in, they normally will gather at the school. People will come in and listen to them, and what they were trying to do is just trying to convince them that, uh, hey, join us and uh, you're gonna have all this stuff if you do, you know.
2: Cuba had been under Fidel Castro's communist control for about a decade. He sent out tens of thousands of troops and advisors around the world to expand communism. He needed allies. El Salvador was an agrarian society coffee, being its cash crop, and made up 95% of the country's income, an income restricted to only 2% of the population, a promising site for a communist revolution.
1: Basically, all we got to do was, you know, sign up with them and you're going to have all of this. What ended up happening is that the town started splitting, like... Some people thought it was a bad idea. Some people thought it was a good idea, and uh, even my own family—they uh, split. Um, you know, half of my uh, decided that they would join the movement, and the other half thought it was a bad idea. And so, we ended up uh, with some of my uncles being in high positions in the communist movement, and my dad and my my uh, grandpa being on the opposite side of things. My dad says that he always thought that it, it was too good to be true, what they were saying. Uh, obviously, when he did not join, that's when he started getting threats that they basically told he needed to join or you know he was going to pay the consequence. So he ended up leaving the town because his life had been threatened, but he left us behind. Mom and there were six of, uh, six of us yeah, in nearby towns entire families had disappeared like nobody knew what had happened Um, and obviously the rumor was that they had been eliminated because they were getting in the way of this great movement that was going to happen but mom tells the story that um that she could hear people talking on why we should be eliminated i guess and why we shouldn't and but i guess The people agreed that they would let us go, with the understanding that we had to disappear from the town. And um, one day they decided to come visit us in the middle of the night. All those people that were joined, they had already joined the movement. They could get everything that they want from that house. They had taken everything that we that we had. And uh, apparently we were the first family that they actually didn't make disappear. Uh, But we were told that we better be out of there by the by, by next night, yeah. My grandpa, my other uh, family member, they still stay behind. And unfortunately, they didn't, they didn't, they didn't make it. They killed grandma, they killed grandpa. Heck, they even killed the dog. The dog was, was the first one that, to go. We lost a lot, of, uh, a lot of our family, yeah.
2: Jose, his siblings, and mother eventually escaped El Salvador and reunited with their father in Houston, Texas. They were legal immigrants, refugees, with what's called a temporary protection status. However, after almost a decade in the U.S., falling in love with this country and needing to frequently reapply for the temporary protection status, Jose was determined to become an American citizen.
1: The sad thing was that we needed to leave the country and reapply and so I got the appointment at the same time that my brother did. So we were to leave America, go to El Salvador, and they were gonna, you know, go do the physical down there. And then you were gonna go to the American Embassy, see if you were approved or not approved to come back. So I must have been 21 by that time, I think. And all I know is this country, and then you're leaving this country and you don't know if they're going to let you back in. I mean, talk about fear for things. So, uh, Went to do the exam, and my brother passed with no problem. They found something on, on my lungs that they needed to further investigate, so I was not approved. To make story short, it, they decided it was nothing. The doctor approved me, so now it was time to go to the embassy. And you know and see if we got get approved. So we did get approved. And I tell you, when I landed at Bush Airport, I mean I, I think that's probably one of the best moments of my entire life. Even when you got in the plane, it, you know, you were very happy, you were excited, but it wasn't until I walked out of those doors that, that you just fell home. You know, you see it sometimes in the movie where people want to kiss the ground. I didn't kiss the ground, but man, I sure wanted to, I didn't want to look stupid, but I, I sure wanted to, you know. Uh, I remember my girlfriend picking me up on her little Toyota Corolla. And I mean, I was hugging the car, I was I was hugging her. I mean, I, I just wish more people could experience that feeling because, you know, everybody's quick to criticize this country. I just wish you would spend a week down in El Salvador or some of those countries. In your whole perspective of this country and appreciation, I mean, if you have any brains, I think your perspective would change.
0: And you've been listening to Jose Menévar, and he is so right. and It's why my grandpa always took me to induction ceremonies when I was young. He didn't want to lose that appreciation in the family for what, well, well first-generation immigrants appreciate more than anybody in the world. And to see that look and hear those voices... It was more than my heart could bear when we continue Jose Menavar's story here on Our American Stories. We continue here on Our American Stories with the story of Jose Menevar. We left off with Jose fleeing the Salvadoran Civil War to the United States back in the 80s. Let's return to Jose's story.
1: You know, one thing my dad always told us you got to work hard. I started as a janitor, that was my first job. My mom, she was cleaning offices. She was working at a restaurant in the daytime, full time, and then she was working four hours at at night. And uh, now my mom uh, had become friends with her manager at at cleaning office, that she would allow her to take the kids to help her out. And when I became um, legal to work age-wise, I I applied for for the job and got the job. they put me to clean restrooms, and that was my first job, and I got very good at it. I it got to the point that I was given four hours to clean, so I think was 16 restrooms. I actually kind of developed my own little system of how I'm going to clean the toilet, you know, what route, and, and that I managed to knock it down to about two and a half hours. It, it normally took the, the four hours that, that it was supposed to take, you know. And what was funny is um, Exxon was one of the tenants there. And they had just installed locks in their restrooms. But if you were inside, there was a way to override the lock. So I would you know, stick in my books and I would lock myself inside the restroom. And there were a few times where the supervisor would come in and I could hear him trying to open and go, This damn, you know, in Espanol, this damn lock I stuck again, you know. And it's like I was quietly inside doing my, my homework and studying. But hey, I, I did a great job and I just had developed a uh, a cleaning system where I could multitask, you know. I'm spraying the mirror at the same time I'm wiping down the corner, you know. So I started as a janitor and um, he, they changed the, the top manager, the account manager. And uh, I guess I was kind of the only people that spoke English, so somehow he liked to talk to me a lot, you know. And so all of a sudden, he decided to move me from what I was cleaning resumes in another. Um, Supervisor told me, "Hey, Mr. Mike says that you're gonna be doing this instead." I'm like, "No, man, I, I don't want it. I'm doing a good job. Why are you moving, right?" So, no, he said, "You're gonna be vacuuming." Okay, so I got very good at vacuuming. You know, uh, it was a little harder to hide, but you know, get did my stuff. But and then about three months later, he changed me again to another position. Uh, and another position, so I went through like four different changes. And I got irritated because I thought he was picking on me. So I actually, I came down and I spoke, asked to speak with him. Said, sir, every time I get good at something, you change me. Why do you pick on me? Like, you don't change anybody else. And obviously, uh, marine guide and, uh, you know, he says, said, yeah, you're just going to do what I take. So I, I told him, I said, next time you change me, I'm, I'm quitting. Sure enough, but three months later, uh, Luis, the supervisor, came, okay, "Hey, Mr. Mike wants to talk to you again. He's going to change me." So um, I came down. To, you know, I'm a man of my word. So I said I was going to quit if he changed me. And you know, I'm going to quit. And sure enough, he said, uh, "I'm, I'm going to change you." And I said, "Well, sir, I told you that I was going to quit." You know. And so I handed over my keys, and he, just, you know, he got up and said, "Sit down." And he said, "Well, for the last I don't know almost year, you've been training to be a supervisor." Yeah. And I said, "I've been doing what?" Yeah, you're good at everything you do now. You know everything, so now I'm gonna promote you to be a supervisor. Yeah. So that's really how my career
2: took off. Jose proceeded to earn two more promotions until he was recruited to become the VP of Operations at PJS, the Professional Janitorial Service. Eager to have a more profound impact on his employees, Jose was confronted with an unsuspecting foe, the Texas branch of the SEIU, the Service Employees International Union. They had been trying to gain ground in the janitorial industry. Five of the six janitorial companies in Houston signed neutrality agreements with the union, allowing the SCIU to attempt to unionize their workforce. For some context, companies often sign these agreements to prevent unions from picketing, boycotting, and having the union organize a strike amongst their employees behind their back. Of the six janitorial companies in Houston, PJS was the only one not to sign the neutrality agreement.
1: So at the beginning, I guess I would say I was pretty neutral. My views were, you know, unions doesn't sound like they're all that bad. But once we start seeing the taxes that they use, you know, uh, harassing our employees, I mean, it gets to the point that my religion tells me I shouldn't hate anybody. But it got to the point that, look, you're crossing a line, you know. You don't try to force somebody to do something that they don't want to do. I think our employees became very educated in what the union was all about. And our employees clearly didn't want to join the union.
2: But the union did not back down.
1: 750 and 800 bearing, okay? Two buildings, one garage with one garage exit, okay? Um, so by this time, they were trying to convince our employees to join the union, right? So one of the things that they did, they actually decided to block the exit of the garage. Remember, this is late at night. The only tenants are not in the building. Our employees are the only ones parking the garage. They decided to block the exit of the garage with one of their vehicles. That way, everybody would just, all the cars would line up behind there, and this is how they were gonna talk to them. You know, that's just wrong. People were, you know, these people are people that have two jobs. All they want to do is go home and start the routine the next day. But they won't move. They were forcing them to listen to their message. We had a company picnic here and um, we're having fun. We're playing mini soccer. We're playing stupid games. So one of the employees comes to me Hey, uh, Jose, uh, so what time are you going to raffle the other stuff? I'm like, What are you talking about? The, the other stuff, the stuff in the van. I said, what are you talking about? The stuff that we sign up uh, when we were coming in. Like, man, I had no idea what you're talking about. Can you show me what you're talking about? So we walked down the street. They had literally set up shop on the street with a Chrysler minivan. They had toasters, microwaves, you know, uh, all kinds of different appliances. And they had set up shop pretending to be with PJS and they were getting people, hey, just fill up this car and we're gonna put you in the drawing for this. Name, phone number, you know, uh, address. So they were making them fill out the information car, pretending to that that they were they were us, you know. And then obviously we try to approach them, and they're in seated I mean I guess public property. We we couldn't we couldn't do anything about it, you know, but I mean to me if you want to recruit your employees, tell them what what you're all about and let them decide. But don't be trying to trick them. Mm-hmm. There was one time that uh, they heard that there was going to be a big rally downtown where all the PJ's employees were going to be there. And people were mm-hmm. calling, who are the employees that are going to be there? I'm not going to be there. I don't know. We can spy. We'll, guess we'll find out. So then they came in and said, well, we want to go and protest. The employees are going to be protesting, Right. Can't tell you what to do or not to do. And one guy was gonna the, kind of the ringleader. He goes, Well, can we come to your office, park our cars there, make some signs, and we're gonna go protest the protest and so turns
2: out that none of those people protesting were employees. It is well documented that the SCIU hires temporary workers to protest as if they are employees of the targeted company.
1: They're not, they're not PJS employees. They were some college kids that they had busted in from Austin or some university, you know. So, but anyway, they showed up there and that, that was kind of kind of cute, yeah. You know?
0: And we're listening to Jose Menivar and what a story he's telling. The Salvadoran refugee comes to America, rises up the ranks of a janitorial company. And what do you know? coming up against unscrupulous union bosses. And by the way, there are good unions working together carefully and closely with employers all over this great country. Uh, but fair and free elections are what unions and proper representation are all about. And tricking people, tricking employees into signing up for a union isn't exactly the best way to do it. And by the way, sometimes there are employers who don't play fair too. And when we come back... More of Jose Menavar's story here on Our American Stories. And by the way, we want to hear your stories, particularly your immigrant stories and your immigration stories about your family members who came here from somewhere else. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. And share your family's immigrant story. Jose Menavar's story continues here on Our American Stories. continue with our American stories and bring you the final installment of Jose Menivore's story, we left off with his employer battling the SEIU, the Service Employees International Union. Let's get back to the story.
1: We had another situation at Cisco, which is uh, another account which we actually lost. And this is how the employees describe it to us. Uh, Look, uh, you don't have to sign up. Uh, I just need to get your signature on this piece of paper. All is saying that I try to talk to you. You didn't want to talk to me, so and then I will leave you alone. Well, what they were signing it was a petition to petition the ownership of that building to hire a union company because we were PJS was a bad company. But the way they got all those signatures, just about everybody, you know, it, basically they were telling, look, my boss, I have you know. Uh, that I'm not doing my job, just sign here just to say that i talked to you. Okay, yeah, let me sign. Yeah. We got a call uh, and, and we got statements from, from from the different people, you know, because we wanted to get it in, in writing that that, that had, had happened. But that's just many of the things. I mean, I got personally got housekeeper approaching me saying, look, these people are showing up in my house, you know, I mean, they're knocking on my door. What can you do?
2: The SEIU started a smear campaign, plaguing the clients of PJS with flyers, letters, newsletters, web postings, and more, alleging that the company was violating wage and labor laws. Which is odd, because many of their employees make higher wages than what the SEIU typically bargains for. We
1: lose a lot of business, okay, because... We don't want to meet someone else's price. So they'll, they'll come to us and say, look, we like you guys. We like what you say. We like what you stand for. We like your product. We like your system. But all the other genitorial companies are telling me that they can do it for 10% less. Guess what? They're not making 10% less profit. Okay? They're paying the employees 10% less than we would. And what's going to happen is they're going to keep losing employees. Turnover is going to be higher. You know, the employees aren't going to be as motivated to do a good job. So, yeah, they are 10% cheaper. But the only reason they're 10% cheaper is because the way they're treating the employee is not equal to the way we're going to treat them.
2: Doesn't sound like the type of company underpaying and mistreating their workers. So, CEO Brent Southwell hit the SDIU with a defamation and disparagement lawsuit. The company lost business because of the SEIU. Twelve contracts, to be exact. Usually, these sort of cases are settled before reaching court. But Brent wanted to make a public example of the SEIU so that other businesses don't fall victim to union antics. Almost a decade later, delayed by union stall tactics, the suit went to trial the jury voted in favor of PJS and demanded that the union pay the company $5.3 million in lost business and punitive damages. The first time in this country's history that a union has been found guilty of defamation and disparagement against a business. A business that has done nothing but helps their employees work towards their American dreams.
1: There was something about the janitoria that I always brought me back. And it was, how do you change people? I wouldn't say destiny, but how do you coach people that if you're good at what you do and you do a good job, it doesn't matter what it is. It might be cleaning toilets, but there's a career there and anything's possible. We live in the greatest country in the world. Uh, the opportunity here. You just got to go and grab it.
2: You know. And Jose has helped make these opportunities more reachable for PJS employees. It all began with Jose personally teaching English classes to his workers. And now PJS pays a language teaching company to teach this necessary skill that helps his employees move up in the world. Yeah, you can live in
1: this country happy without English, but you're limited on the things you're going to be able to do. You are limiting me to promote you to a, to a better position because I need you to communicate in English. That's going to start opening up the door. You know that if you learn English, you're working part-time at night. Nobody's there at night, so you don't need to speak English. You know, that's so fine. But if once you start learning English, I can promote you to the daytime. Daytime job is full-time. Daytime job is much easier because the bulk of the cleaning is done at night, and the daytime you just maintain it. And you're going to make more money. I mean, it's that simple. But I can't put you as a day maid unless you are able to communicate a little bit. And we actually pay them to sit in those classes. And the way it works is you get paid for half of the time that you're in the English classes as you go. It's 16 weeks. And if you complete the 16 weeks, then you get the other half. So literally we're not we're not charging you to learn the English, and we're actually paying you at whatever rate you make it. You know, if it's overtime, we'll pay you the overtime. So we try to make it very easy. Obviously, we as a company benefit as well because some of our my best supervisors and day mates and day keep coming out of the English classes. We want to help the employees, uh, and by helping them, we're helping ourselves. You know, uh, by taking care of them, we're also taking care of ourselves because you treat them right. We always say. We treat them as first-class citizens. And, and there's a lot of loyalty that we have among our employees. Yeah, And that's just, to me, is very re- rewarding. Yeah. When you tell an employee, you know, hey, you're ready to be a supervisor, which means you're going to make more money, which means you, you're going to be able to provide more for your family. So that to me, that's very, very rewarding. Yeah.
2: And now Jose has even more opportunity to impact lives, as he has recently been given perhaps the ultimate promotion president of PJS. It feels
1: good. Um, and the reason it feels good okay, is because now I can actually influence even more people. You know, uh, when I say influence, it's, look, if I can make it, you can make it. You know, uh, and, and I think a lot of people, you know, don't do things because they, nobody really takes the time to encourage them, you know. Hey, you gotta learn English. You know, hey, hey you, you, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta work hard. You know, uh, it doesn't matter if the guy next door is getting paid the same thing and you're working harder than he is. But believe me, eventually somebody's gonna notice, and things are gonna change for you. You know, it's that type of change that I, that I, that's what I love doing. Now we're to the point that almost all my managers are. Uh, we all started as housekeepers and they're all being being promoted. So. I use the same way that they promoted me. I actually tell them, look, if you do this, we're going to promote you as supervisor." So it's not like I'm throwing them in different positions without telling them. But I actually tell them. And so a lot of people are making a good career by being a janitor.
0: And you've just heard Jose Menjivar's story. And what an American dreamer story it is. Comes here from El Salvador. At the height of the Civil War, the communists just destroying that great country and comes here as a janitor and ends up being president of PJS, a janitorial company with over 1,400 employees. And as always, our American Dreamer stories are brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network, Jose Menivar's story here on Our American Stories. And now it's time for our Why Minutes. Here's Lindsay Marie.
3: When you think of sports betting, what state do you think of? I'm no psychic, but I'm guessing you were thinking of Nevada. But why is that? It has a lot to do with something called the Bradley Act. The Bradley Act was passed by Congress in the 90s. politicians said it was to protect us from the spread of gambling, but what it actually did was protect Nevada from competition. It restricted sports betting in every state, except, you guessed it, Nevada. For decades, if you wanted to bet on the games legally, you had to go all the way to Nevada that was, until New Jersey finally had enough. They challenged the law and hit the jackpot. The law was declared unconstitutional, putting an end to Nevada's decades-old monopoly on sports betting. When government meddles in the marketplace, they often say it's to protect us. But what really ends up happening is they change the rules, they stack the odds. Ultimately, they pick winners and losers, and we the consumers are always the losers. The Why Minutes, because why matters.
0: And to hear more Why Minutes, go to whyminutes.com. we continue with our American stories. And as you know, we tell stories about everything here. But the most important stories we tell are our military stories. And this one is a military family story. And you're going to hear right now from Mike McDaniel, a retired U.S. Navy captain himself. He shares with us a few defining moments of his life from way back when, when he was just a little boy, growing up as the son of a naval aviator deployed in Vietnam.
4: We grew up as a Navy family. We had many gatherings where the families would get together, the wives and the children. So we kind of a community within the aviation squadrons. And I remember one day, I can remember it like it was yesterday. May 19th, it was a beautiful day outside. Friday afternoon, happy-go-lucky third grade kid, walking home from school. Couldn't wait to get home, spend the weekend playing with my buddies in the neighborhood. And as I approached the house, I noticed there were about a dozen cars in the driveway and along the street. And again, not atypical for a, for a Navy family because they get together, so I didn't think anything out of it. So I went in the house, and as soon as I walked in the house, uh, Mrs. Miles, who was a wife of another squatter mate of my dad's, Uh, came up and she says you're going to come home with me for the weekend to spend the night with Gary and Larry. They were her sons that were kind of two of my good friends. Okay, so I didn't really have anything planned but it sounded okay so uh, we uh, got in her car and on the way to her house we stopped at a Hyde's ice cream store. Hyde's ice cream stores at that time were like candy heaven for a kid. You could get ice cream, multi-flavors and they had these candy racks. You can remember they were like you know. They were huge as, as I remember them as a kid. And she said to me, Michael, get whatever you want, as much as you want. Red flag, something, something's not right here, but hey, what a great opportunity. So I remember going up to the candy rack and just stuffing my arms and glancing over her every once in a while to see if I kind of was reaching the threshold. And she just was like, you know, go up for it. So literally as much as I could carry, I took up to the counter. So, whatever, so we went and we had spent the night, and we you know did what little kids do you know during a sleepover and then the next morning she brought me back and I remember they used to have these big bubblegum sticks back when we were kids they were called big buddies, and they were these long things of bubblegum. and I remember about five minutes out from the house, I tore that thing open and I stuffed that whole thing in my mouth and uh she let me out say goodbye, so I walked in the house, and my mom met me at the door, and she said, let's go back to your room, I need to tell you something. So we walked back to my bedroom, and she said, let me hold your bubble gum, because what I'm going to tell you is going to make you cry. And then she said that my dad had been shot down the previous day over Vietnam, and was currently in the jungle of North Vietnam, and they were going to hopefully rescue him later that day. And that was the last thing we heard for the next three years. So for those first three years of his six-year time away, we didn't know if he was dead or alive. And I remember my dad telling me, and one of the last things he said to me was, take care of the family while I'm gone. So here we were. I was in the third grade. My brother was two years younger, and my sister was only four. And uh, at the time, the Navy had told my mother for us not to tell anybody that he had been shot down, family or friends. And I was just like, how do you do that? How do you go without a father and do this? I remember wanting to think he was okay, but not wanting to think he was okay if he really wasn't. So that was kind of a tough thing to to think through as a young, young boy. The other day, I can tell you everything that happened. It was three years later, and it was the day of the solar eclipse in Virginia Beach. I remember the full solar eclipse of the sun, which is kind of a big deal. The community was really playing it up. And I had a little league um, basketball championship game. And I was a pretty decent basketball player back then. And I was spending the night with Petey Bowerman, whose dad was our coach. We had the early game. It was like an 8.30 game, and it was a championship game. Mrs. Bowerman, or one of them, came in the room, and you know we were just waking up. And she says, Michael, your mother's on the phone. I remember these words, too. She said, Michael, will have some wonderful news. And up until that point, anytime time she had said that, I thought, something about Dad, something about Dad. But it would be something like, the grandparents are coming to town for the weekend, or we're going somewhere. It was like a letdown. And this time, I remember vividly thinking, the grandparents are coming to town for the weekend. And she says, a list came out today. The North Vietnamese released a list of 14 names of men being held officially as POWs and your dad's names on it. We know he's alive. And it was like the weight of the world came off my shoulders. I went to the basketball game and I normally scored about 10, 12 points. And I think I made it score two. I could really care less what happened with the game. And then the reality set in. Okay, he's alive. Now what? Well, let's get this war over with and let's get him home. So I started watching the news, you know, constantly to try to find out what was happening. That was about the time where they were arguing about whether to sit around a round table or a square table to negotiate. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. My dad's being held as a prisoner of war, and they're arguing about what size the table is going to be to talk about. That was a very tumultuous time of the war. and Now I understand it better, you know, because of the history of it, but Ho Chi Minh had died, so a lot of, a lot of changes were taking place in Vietnam, but the streets were wild with protesters and the uh, the anti-war movement and it was just like everything was spinning out of control and here's your dad languishing in a prison somewhere. Okay then let me fast forward to when we found he was coming home. The ceasefire had taken place in the Paris Peace Talks where they were, they were negotiating and then they announced they were going to release the first wave of POWs that were there the longest and my dad was going to be part of the second wave of prisoners to come home. Well the first wave came home and that was such a joyous occasion I can remember Jeremiah Denton walking off the plane and doing his God Bless America. It was just wonderful. And, and you knew my dad was going to be in that next wave of those that were released. And then the, the peace treaty broke down, and so they delayed the release. It was like a bad dream. It's just a horrible feeling. Then they, they finally did have the release date, but something else had happened. Because of the first wave that came out and started getting their debriefings, because they started that right away, They found out about what my dad had gone through in 1969. There was an escape attempt. The Navy psychologist came and sat down with us as children and told us, your dad went through a real rough go. There was some real severe torture. We're not sure what kind of shape he's going to be in mentally. And that scared me to death as a kid. And I I guess I appreciate them trying to prepare us, but that's not something you say to a 15-year-old and a 13-year-old and a 10-year-old. I I remember being horrified by what 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 now what else is coming so they take off from Hanoi and we know he's on his way to the Philippines this is before internet this is before cable television just network television at the time the plane was going to land in Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines like at four in the morning our time on the east coast so my mom comes in to each of our bedrooms while we're asleep before she wakes us up and takes a Polaroid picture of us sleeping before she wakes us up. I think I'm laying there with my dog with my mouth wide open or something. So she wakes us up and we all gather around the television. And my mom, she's on the floor on her knees in front of the television. And you see this plane land, and then it taxis up to the tarmac. And they bring the ladder up, they open the door, and the POWs start coming out one by one. And you see this guy, you could tell he was tall, and he's there, and all you see is from about the chest down, and he's adjusting his belt line. We call it a gig line in the Navy. You can make sure your, your shirt is lined up with your pants, trousers, and your belt buckle. It's just a Navy thing, I didn't you know. And you just knew it was him. And my mom dissolves into tears on the floor. I mean, she's just on the floor, just sobbing, and we're like, Mom, not now. Not now. you got to watch this. So she never saw it. She saw, had to see it on the reruns the next day. Then he walks down the ladder. There he is, as large as life, your dad getting on free soil. You know, that was so cool. So then, let me go back to the, the time where they are supposed to come into Norfolk, Naval Air Station Norfolk. And there were like thousands, probably 10,000 people that had come to the airfield to watch this watch these men come home. They were going to fly to Travis Air Force Base, then to Naval Air Station Norfolk. But it got fogged in. And again, it's like, what next? You know, it was like one more thing that was delaying it. So what they did, they ended up flying into Oceana and then driving from there to the hospital in Portsmouth, where they were going to be. So the crowd never saw all that. But they transferred us to the hospital. This black sedan drives up into the conclave, of the hospital. And the door opens and out pops this guy, in this Navy khaki, full-dress uniform, who you've been waiting for for seven years because he was almost at towards the end of a year-long deployment. Large as life, looking so sharp even though he's pretty skinny. But he just rushes to the family, hugs my mom first, then picks up my sister in his arms and they all kind of gather around and he says a few words and it it was like yes we're there yes
0: and you're hearing a grown man recalling a really tough time in his life almost breaking down and crying and again that was mike mcdaniel a retired u.s navy captain and his dad captain eugene red mcdaniel who flew a6s in vietnam shot down on his 81st combat mission The son gets the bad news. Three years, third grade, third grade to sixth grade. Is dad dead? Don't know. And then four more years, practically, will dad come home? Don't know. Dad does. What a great story. Mike McDaniel's story, his dad's story, here on Our American Story.
5: For more, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for the podcast.
0: Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we talk about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, from history to business, and everything in between. And we love hearing your stories. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org, and we'll take a few of them, take many of them if possible, and turn them into stories right here on the show, and put them up on the satellite so you can hear them too. Also, to hear all of our material and our best each week, our five best stories each week. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for our free newsletter. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And send the link to friends. What we're doing here is special. I think you know it. Share it with friends. And anywhere you can, talk up what we're doing. We appreciate it, and so too does your station. And now it's time for the McClellan Files, where we go deep inside the life of Bob McClellan, someone that you don't know, but whose life and whose voice you're certain to be captivated by.
6: While watching a movie with my wife in the family room one evening, we were interrupted by our 16-year-old son, Tommy, who walked in and sat down with us. Politely, he said he had something important he wanted to discuss with us. As I turned off the TV, I quickly imagined all the possibilities of something terrible, disastrous, or difficult that could force a 16-year-old boy to sit down to talk with his parents about anything important. My wife, with her eyes wide open, sat silently while we all got settled in to hear what he had to say. I could not remember his approaching us like this before, and my expectations, coupled with my imagination, made me feel very uncomfortable. He began to tell us about a friend whose cousin attended the New Mexico Military Institute in Roswell, New Mexico for high school. That cousin is now a captain in the Green Berets and is teaching math at West Point. Tommy was very impressed by that and said he wanted to go there for the remaining two years of high school. He talked about the academic standing of the school, the numerous activities that were available, and the challenges he felt the school would present him. As he spoke, I was still unprepared for the ending of his story. Calmly, and ever so smoothly, he discussed his desire to attend such a school and pursue a college education that, no doubt, had a military career as its ultimate destination. His mother countered with a gentle return to reason when she said, "'You're going to a fine private high school here in the Bay Area. Why would you want to leave all of your friends?' More straightforward questions came from me like, are you unhappy or do you want drugs? He said he was prepared to leave his friends as he would make new ones at the school. And though it was a military school, he was not enlisting and would still be a high school student. He returned to talking about the courses and activities offered by the school and its academic reputation. He thought the discipline and focus would help him be more successful. It was obvious he had done his homework and it was evidence of how seriously he took this idea of leaving home, traveling and living at the school, and taking on a rigorous academic and physical regimen at 16 years of age. Young though he may be, he had reached a fork in the road in his life that his mother and myself didn't see. We asked, why would he want to be going to a military institute that sat out in the middle of the New Mexican desert? It was their reputation, he said. In their one-year cadet prep program, 97% go on to one of the military academies. Out of a total of 900 students, 90 went on to the military academies. He thought that by doing well at NMI, he could pick any college he wanted to attend and after graduation from college, become an officer. I began to suspect that he was bored living under the shady trees amidst a wealthy suburb south of San Francisco. A bedroom community offers little excitement. Punching a time clock, working at a retail store, or hanging around with your friends, playing with your phone while living at home, is a lot less adventurous and exciting than traveling around the different places, living within a community where 30% of the student body is international. 100% our former military, and meeting the many challenges that the military presents. We reminded him that home and community are important for his development. They are nourishing, sustaining, and necessary foundations for his life. But, like bread, they can often become stale. It wasn't love or nourishment that was missing. He just needed more room to grow. Finally, I just had to get to the point. I asked him, what's this all about? I said, i got no problem with the military, but why not do ROTC in college? If you want to go in the military, why do you need to go down there and do this? There was a moment of silence and a calm, self-assured demeanor. He looked at me, and without any doubt or hesitancy in his voice, he said, Dad, I am not going to go to Stanford Business School, and I am not going to go to Harvard, and I am not going to spend the rest of my life working in an office. I want to be a captain in the Green Berets. I was speechless. There was nothing more I could say. And at that point, I was done. I was sold. He said he wanted to be an officer in the Green Berets, work in special operations, and be fluent in Arabic. He wanted to be a leader and not a follower. He had heard from his friend's cousin that these men don't need to find themselves. They do that every time they're standing in the doorway, getting ready to jump out of a plane. I asked him, Are you prepared to jump out of a perfectly good airplane over Nigeria?" His response was a simple yes. I could see the look in his eyes were infused with his youthful imagination and romanticism. But I knew he meant it. I understood how he felt, and though I thought it was a little early, I reminded myself that after all, it's just high school. He's not going off to war. I knew too that regardless of how far down this path he goes, he will benefit from making this decision and will learn a lot about himself in the process. This was his decision. He looked into his own insipid life and realized that he needed to find a different path to take him to a different place. He didn't know where that place was located, but his imagination convinced him that it existed. He just had to find it.
0: And when we come back, more of this terrific story from Bob McClellan. By the way, go to the McClellan Files at ouramericannetwork.org and you can hear all that Bob does. What a terrific storyteller. And by the way, if you have a storyteller in your town that you know can just, well, hop out stories, send his or her information to us at ouramericannetwork.org because we know there are great storytellers all over this great country. More of the McClellan Files and this is Our American Stories and we pick up where we last left off with the McClellan Files a young man, a boy having a dream in his head a vision in his head of leading a team overseas in the Green Beret and making that next important move to go to military school Let's pick up where we last left off As a parent, I learned
6: eventually I could not really direct my children's lives anymore Oh yeah, I could influence or coerce them but I was no longer the director. In this conversation with him that night, I realized I'd become a spectator. I always believed as a father that the best I could do was to prepare my children to set their direction in life and be ready to live with the success or failure of their choices. Now, I would have to honor that belief. Consequences exist in the world of adults while children are protected from them. Families, like ours create barriers and boundaries and walls trying to keep out the grimmer and grimier aspects of society. But to do that, we risk becoming imprisoned inside the walls, holding on to the illusion that we are safe and in control. We sent our children to private schools, put alarm systems in our house, and were careful about who we invited into our home. But still, we know that no one is safe. We pick their friends, pick their school, and where they can go but at some point we can no longer be there to make their decisions or supervise every activity, place, or person that comes into their life. The point has to come where either I release him or he just jerks his hand out of mine. Troubles like drugs, teen suicides, mental illness, or just being lost living at home with mom and dad have permeated through the porous walls of his school. He sees some of his peers already making these dangers a lifestyle and it is one of the reasons why he wants to leave. These dangers may be hidden among the many tomorrows of his future. It was becoming apparent to me that Tommy is not just running to someplace, but running away from someplace. I thought my wife and I would make all of his decisions, but at some point I know we won't be there to help him. To manage these serious difficulties, he needs many attributes to get him through, and resourcefulness sits at the top of that list. Resourcefulness is an attribute that is part of the military bedrock. Planning for the unexpected, adapting to fluid situations, and working with limited resources are integral parts of military training. Our natural instinct at home is to nurture our children. It is our duty as parents, but being nurturing is not preparing them to be self-sufficient and independent. Eventually, the breast runs dry and is incapable of providing nourishment for a man. The appetite becomes too large when your son is six feet tall and shaving. Without realizing it, Tommy's decision is one that will help him develop the ability to take care of himself. Wow, what a concept. Choosing for oneself which side of the wall is right for you is a decision we all have to make. Tommy chose the risk of being on the outside rather than being inside in the safety of the center. His confidence impressed me as evidence of both his desire for independence and self-reliance. Regardless of the outcome, this is his choice. If he gets down there and doesn't like taking seven classes a day and training in 100 degree heat in the desert, then that's just too bad as far as I'm concerned. I am sure this experience will teach him to be very selective about what he chooses to do in the future. He will certainly learn his limitations down there as well as his capabilities. Video games and drugs and alcohol hold no allure or excitement for him. At NMI, he is not allowed to even have a smartphone and internet access is controlled by the school. He leaves all those attachments and appendages here at home. There is no use for them at the school. They will write letters instead and carry a flip phone. The school seems to have a policy that I embrace. Less is more. I told him that the door only swings one way here, and other than leave or come home on vacations, don't come back until you finish. He said, no problem, Dad. I told all my children when they turn 18, three doors will appear in their life. The door to college, the door to the military, in the front door and they're going to go out of one of those three doors for sure and Tommy he's the last to go. Afterwards my wife discussed the conversation with me and she asked what I thought was driving his decision. My answer to her question was that he was bored. A high school campus full of kids that all grew up together becomes a very small world Church for teenagers, every Sunday, boy, that gets routine real fast. Faith, eventually, fades away. Teachers telling him all day what he's to believe doesn't challenge him to think for himself. He doesn't learn to solve real problems, but rather digital or paper ones. In the novel All Quiet on the Western Front, Paul Bomber exclaims to his former teacher after returning home on leave from the front lines in World War One: You never taught us anything really useful like how to light a match in the wind or make a fire out of wet wood. Sometimes it is the practical and not the theoretical education that is important. He wants to take classes to fly a plane, experience scuba diving, and rappel out of a helicopter. Run an obstacle course and learn about teamwork from teachers who spent many years in the military. He's not interested in being a digital cartoon characterization action figure. He wants to be a real one. He wants to be a Green Beret no less. Those ideas and dreams lie far out in the future. Though they may never materialize, I am comforted that he has some starting point in his life. These are questions his mother and I have discussed with him since that night, the questions that he could not provide answers for. He told us he would find them when he gets there. It was so apparent to me that my son was becoming someone else. I could see his hunger for adventure and challenge was contained in my most favorite quote of all of literature shakespeare's play the taming of the shrew it introduces the hero petruchio who while riding into padua is greeted by a friend from his hometown who asks oh hail petruchio what winds blow thee to padua he answers such winds that scatter young men through the world to seek their fortune farther from home where small experience grows. These are the words that help me understand my son's decision. I worry about his mother, and how she's feeling about the prospect of her son leaving home at 16. She was unprepared and not happy about a separation so soon from Tommy. Our other son, Bobby, had left for college a year earlier, and she thought she would have Tommy for two more years. The idea of spending 20 years as a mother and then watching them leave home is a painful experience for any mom, but his desire was so credible and so sincere that she could only say yes. She said she could not be so selfish as to stand in the way of her son seeking to make his life matter at 16. She always said that she put her children first. Her commitment to that devotion puts her into the selfless position that how her children feel is more important than how she feels. So she is preparing herself for what will be one of the most difficult sacrifices she could make for her children. What a fine example of love that is. For me, I grew up in and served in the military as did most of my family. And though I will miss him, I accept the idea that life is a journey through a strange land and each obstacle that's overcome becomes a transition to the next place in life. This challenge will expand the margins of Tommy's life and test his capabilities. When we finally informed Tommy that he'd been accepted and that he could go, I had a sense that I would see a lot of Roswell, New Mexico over the next couple years. I think my wife will insist upon it.
0: And what a terrific story, and as always, beautifully told and written by Bob McClellan. Go to the McClellan Files at Our American Network to hear all of his work. And by the way, again, if you know a storyteller in your town, in your city, in your community, and you know who they are, there are a few people who can just really write and tell a story. Send their names to us here at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And by the way, thanks to our proud sponsors of the show, MyPillow, and that's MyPillow.com, to order their terrific pillows. And there's a 10-year warranty on these pillows. They're guaranteed not to go flat. They're 100% machine washable and dryable. And best of all, they're made right here in the United States in Minnesota. The founder, Mike Lindell, well, he's committed to having their operations in our country and in his hometown of Chaska, Minnesota. And by the way, my wife and I use them faithfully and fight over which is which. We often get confused and end up, well, just having arguments over who was whose. And now I'm actually, we got names on them, so that can't happen anymore. Hopefully. We'll see. That's MyPillow.com, MyPillow.com. And mention the word stories or pull the stories word down in the menu bar. This is Our American Stories, The McFarlane Files. continue with Our American Stories, and we love to bring you stories of places across this great country of ours, and today we bring you the story of a town. Hannibal, Missouri was, in the mid-1800s, a gateway to the vast unknown territory beyond the Mississippi and the town that shaped Samuel Langhorne Clemens, the father of American literature better known as Mark Twain. Here is Richard Gary, who spent the better part of three decades portraying Twain in a play he's written based on transcripts of Twain's own onstage material. In the early 2000s, Richard bought an old stable in the heart of Hannibal, Missouri, and turned it into a theater where he performs regularly. We just had to sit down and ask him about this wild town and the man it produced. Here is Richard Gary.
5: Well, what you have to understand is that when you cross the Mississippi River, you're in the west. It also was a river town. And that combination of being a western town and a river town assured that this, this was gonna be wild. And then people are heading west, and this was a main immigration route because they wanted to get out to St. Joe, where the wagon trains were. So you could take the Oregon Trail, you could take the California Trail, or the Santa Fe Trail from St. Joe. Steamboats would hit town. Every type of character on earth would get off. Sam Clemens. one day he was up here in this area somewhere, and he heard yelling. So his curiosity got the better of him, went down. Two men are yelling, some sort of argument. And one of them said, well, let's just take this argument to arms. And the other one said, well, that's fine with me, I'll just shoot you dead. It's kind of like the old Westerns, you know? So they went out, paced off, 15 paces. Turned and fired. And the little one was right. He got him the other one right in the chest. They both got shots off. Sam Clemens is standing there. Can you imagine his mother? with all of her children growing up and all and So they picked the man up, they took him over to Grant's Drugstore and put him out on the floor. And when shooting like that would happen in a small place and about a thousand people lived here at that time, they all gather down there, what's going on? You know? And so the latecomers, and Sam describes this, he, the latecomers come up and they go,
3: oh, move
5: over, I pay taxes. <laughs> I have as much a right to see a man die as anybody else. Move it." And so he said someone ran out and fetched a heavy Bible and brought it back. And he said, I was just a boy, but I thought it was cruel, very cruel, because they opened that heavy Bible up and they put it down on that poor man's chest. He was struggling to breathe. And. According to the story, that pretty much did it. He breathed his last there. But he used that story in Huckleberry Finn. It's the killing of old Boggs by Colonel Sherburn, but it actually happened right down there. And he said, all writers that I know, uh, they take everything that's ever happened to them and eventually it goes into the material. But this uh, little alleyway here by the building is Dead Man's Alley. Well-earned, wide-open gambling places, saloons, stabbings in this alleyway. The whole town had that atmosphere, and that's why I say a Wild West town. Not totally lawless, but there's certainly that element. You know, the locals always trying to keep a lid on things, and then people coming from who knows where and really they came from all over the world through here on one occasion an english lord came through here on safari you know and then it made sense because just like they went to africa they came here for american game you know grizzlies buffalo bighorn sheep whatever you know and so he came through with his entourage, got off steamboat, headed on safari. <laughs> the steamboats, it's, it's part of the lore here. It's one reason the town existed as a trading center. There were no roads in those days, just none, just trails. But the Mississippi was their highway here. Huge commercial and transportation uh, vehicle in the center part of the country here. Like Sam Clemens' family, they came up here on the steamboat, they didn't come covered wagons. He wasn't born here, he was born west of here in a tiny little place uh, called Florida. Monroe County, Missouri, and uh, I think Florida had about 100 people in it when he was born. They've preserved his house, it's over there as a tourist attraction, it's inside a building, and it's a tiny little house. He said, I've always referred to it as a palace, but there are photographs now, so I shall have to be more guarded. (laughs) When he was four, they moved here for greater opportunities. And his father built that house over on Hill Street, the White House over there. And that's where they lived first here, then after his father died, they were very poor. Can't imagine anyone more poverty-stricken than he was as a boy. And became our first celebrity worldwide He could get off a train in India and be instantly recognized. He's a worldwide uh, phenomenon. But he came from this little, little place. In those days, uh, people helped each other out. But he says his mother was not too proud to take any job. She took in washing, she... His sister gave piano lessons over at the house. Uh, they did literally everything. And then she took him out of school at the start of sixth grade. And uh, he was apprentice to Mr. A. Mint, who ran a newspaper. The building was right here in this lot. The hotel was over here in that building over on that side. There was a store down below and his office was on the second floor. He didn't get paid anything as an apprentice but he got room and board so that's one less mouth to feed and he's learning a trade. And he says he has no regrets from those days because right down there is where he learned to write in that newspaper office. and I can throw a stone down there from here, you know, it's just
0: wonderful having that in my backyard. And we've been listening to Richard Gary, who has spent the better part of three decades portraying Twain in a play he's written based on transcripts of Twain's own onstage material. And by the way, small-town America has created, well, so many geniuses in this country, and People from really tough circumstances have done, well, just the unimaginable in this country. More from this story in Hannibal, Missouri. And by the way, Richard performs in an old stable in the heart of Hannibal and performs there regularly if you're ever in the area. Take a stop on by when we continue the story of Hannibal, Missouri, the town that created Mark Twain. This is Our American Story. Turn to our American stories and to Richard Gary's storytelling about a small town in Missouri called Hannibal. It happens to also be the place that Mark Twain put on the map. Let's return to Richard.
5: He had a his mother rented a little slave, Sandy. in all respects, except officially, became his brother, lived in a house over there. And I think it's all those experiences that led, you know, to his amazing movement from the culture of his time to someone who created that tiring, heroic black figure. We don't give him enough credit. He's criticized for using the N-word, but oh, he was so far ahead. This is racism central right here. When he grew up, he was willing to examine everything. He, um, He believed that you needed to examine everything. He said, you need to look at life, you need to Think about it and then make up your own rules. And he said, That's not as easy as it sounds. But I think that's what he did. And he grew up thinking that slavery was God ordained. Um, his father was a slaveholder. Half the town was slave, half free. But he, he didn't, as he grew up, he didn't just accept it. He was willing to challenge himself, to think about it. And of course, he had some great influences, like Sandy, and like Uncle Daniel. who was a slave on his uncle's farm that used to tell them stories every night. He was a master storyteller. Uh, Not formally educated at all, but he said the most educated man I ever knew. He told them all the Uncle Remus tales long before Joel Chandler Harris wrote them down. They were folklore. And so he would hold them spellbound and he said, that good man gave me my love of story and literature. Single-handedly, he said he just Handed it to me every night, I heard him. And so he's the model for Jim, Uncle Dow. But all those experiences, uh, he thought about, he pondered, he... And then I think the catalyst, when he went out to California, he saw how the Chinese were being treated. And it outraged him. And he took up their cause in the newspaper That was his first foray into defense of a minority. And then, uh, Huckleberry Finn is into that whole question of slavery and the the rights of, of black men. What you see in Huckleberry Finn is this boy and this man going down the river, trying to escape from that hole. The boy is escaping a a drunk, abusive father, and, and Jim is escaping slavery. And as they go along though, as you read the book, it slowly dawns on Huckleberry. This is a man. I've never thought of him as a man, but and it's just little chipping away, chipping away, chipping away. See, they told them in Sunday school that if they didn't tell him a runaway, they would go to hell and that's quite a a threat and, and something that would have a lot of uh, influence on a kid and uh, they see some lights and uh, Huckleberry says that might be Cairo I better go paddle ashore and see so he had made up his mind telling but he had already written a letter too so he pushes off and Jim says There you go, the old true Huck. You the only white gentleman ever keep his promise, old Jim. He said, took the tuck out of him, and he got to thinking. So he tore up the letter, and he said, "Well, I'll just go to hell." See that? You see that's when he goes this is my friend, this is a human being, I'm not going to do it. I'll go to hell, but that's what it means. It's powerful. Now, it hits you right It's like, it's what I call Hannibal finesse. <laughs> he takes a two-by-four and slaps you across the face with it. You know, wake up. This is what, and time you're denigrating one of these people, you know, what are you doing? But what makes it even more powerful is that he came out of all of that where it was just an everyday thing. He's immersed in that racism. I mean, up to his level neck, you know, in it every day. Yet he comes out of it. And, and, and that's part of what I've been fascinated with, you know, this, how that, how did that happen and what. And I think part of it is, is that, that independence here where oh, nobody forces anyone to their point of view here. You can fly your own flag if you want. You know, and and it's still here. And I I think it used to be more prevalent in America that that was possible. You know, I don't dis, I don't agree with you. Well, that's fine. We can still be neighbors. I remember my grandfather saying that man came over. I'm from Tennessee originally. My grandfather had a cotton farm that I worked on growing up, and my grandfather always voted Republican. Now, if you don't know much about the South in those days, that was the protest <laughs> party. That was uh, the party of Reconstruction. Of, uh, that was anti-racism. And the Democrat Party was the party of uh, Jim Crow and keeping people down. And the guy came over. See, my great-grandfather fought for the Union. He was born in Ireland, came here, hated slavery, fought for the Union in the war, and so my family had always been Republican there in the South. So this guy comes over and says, Chester, you're going to have to vote Democratic this time. There's just no way you can vote Republican. And my grandfather said, Well, there is. I just go in and mark my ballot. He said, No, you're, you're really... You're gonna, I'd hate to get rough on you. And my grandfather said, Well, you can get as rough as you want, but we'll still remain friends, and you'll vote Democrat, and I'll vote Republican.
0: And yes, there was a time when such things happened. I think they still happen here today, though maybe not as frequently as we would like. And you were listening to Richard Gary, and my goodness, I don't think there's a guy in America who knows more about the subject of Hannibal, Missouri, or Mark Twain, and again he has spent the better part of three decades portraying Twain based on Twain's own writing and some of the transcripts of Twain's own on-stage material. It turns out Twain wasn't just a writer, by the way. This guy toured and performed. He was the, well, maybe the first stand-up and one-man show before such things became prevalent a century later. Twain was out there. Well, he didn't just create the American novel. Many people think it was the finest and still is the finest American novel. But my goodness, he did so much more and used humor as a weapon, a real weapon, And again, we're always looking for your stories here on Our American Stories. Send them to us at ouramericannetwork.org. And that doesn't just mean your stories. If there's someone like Richard in your town that knows a lot about the town, a sort of resident historian, the know-it-all about all that's happened in the past, send some information our way. We'll get in touch. Again, Our American Stories loves, loves these authentic stories about, well, all parts of this great country. And we've learned a lot about Hannibal, Missouri, thanks to Richard Gary's terrific narration and storytelling. The father of American literature, Mark Twain, the town he spent the formative part of his young life, and that's Hannibal, Missouri, the story of both and so much more here on Our American Stories.